this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, how do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war? These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to Built to Sell Radio. This is a unique and special edition. It's the Q&A edition where you can get your questions answered around the topic of building to sell. I'm John Marlow, your host, and I have solicited in advance a series of questions, and we're going to go through each of them right now. The first question is coming in from John K. I'm not going to use your last names to preserve your anonymity. John K. asks, how should I structure my second-in-command's compensation plan? Yeah, great question, John. I think, uh, let's let's back up. Why would you want to have a second-in-command? When you sell your business, in fact, when you're trying to build the value of your business, you're going to reach a, ce- a ceiling pretty quickly if you're doing everything yourself. And so what you want to do is structure it so that it can thrive without you personally. One of the ways to do that is to bring in a management team. And arguably, the most important person on the management team is your second-in-command, your general manager, the individual that sort of makes the trains run on time. Great question from John K. How do you deal with their compensation? I think you bucket it into three buckets. There's the the base comp. There's going to be some short-term variable comp and some long-term variable comp that is aligned with your overall long-term objectives with the company. The base has got to be market, around market. Obviously, if you're going to attract someone of really high quality, they're not going to do it for free. And you may make the case that they should accept something less than market in order to uh, get more long term. But, you know, a general manager, a senior level person is going to have some options, some, 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 when I say options, I don't mean stock options necessarily, but I mean options for their career. And so I think you're going to have to pay up a reasonable base salary. In addition, you're going to probably want them to chase some very short-term annual goals, maybe even as short as quarterly goals. And so I think there's some short-term variable comp that can be tied to you know their overall objectives, the key performance indicators that you set out for the company that are long-term aligned to what you're trying to do. The long-term variable comp compensation bucket, the third bucket, I think is the most interesting because here you really want to align yourself and your second in command in lockstep. And so one of the biggest mistakes I think you can make is tying their long-term compensation to EBITDA or top line revenue. And here's why. Those are great metrics in the short term, but they don't necessarily fully align with your long-term goal to build a more valuable company. Oftentimes, what makes the business more 
profitable may in fact not necessarily make it more valuable. In in the same way, what, what will make it more larger, more sales may not necessarily make it more valuable. For example, you know, in the short term, you may want to invest in building a new website for your company. That's going to make your business less profitable this year because you're going to have to make the expenditure to invest in a new website. Long term, it'll make your business more valuable. And if your second in command is fully you know, compensated by something like profit or revenue, it can lead to a misalignment in goals. If your goal is to build a valuable business, their long-term comp should be tied to the value of your company. And so you can do that through you know, stock options, for example, if your intent is to sell your business, you can do it through um, like a long-term incentive plan. You can do it um, with even a success bonus, which is tied to the, your value builder score, for example. There's lots of different ways to align yourself with what your ultimate goal is. You don't have to give them stock to make them aligned with you. You can use options, you can use phantom stock, and you can even use a success bonus tied to the sale of your company, if that is your ultimate goal. In any event, I think you're gonna wanna have three buckets, John. A base, a short-term variable that can be tied to things like your key performance indicators, and then a long-term variable. But make sure whatever you add is your long-term bogey that it is aligned lockstep with what you are personally trying to achieve as the CEO and founder of the company. John K., great question. Thanks. Next question comes from George in Dubai. How do I let the market know I am interested in selling without looking desperate? I love this question, George. I think there's a few things you can do. First of all, the magic of being a part of your industry association. So get involved in your industry association, volunteer, speak at the industry event. Hopefully soon we'll be able to get back to live events, but be a really active participant in your industry. Why? Well, industry players, in particular acquirers, also are involved in the industry on the board of the association speaking at the events. You're just going to meet a lot of the people in the industry by getting involved. So I would get involved. Number two, awards. I cannot stress enough the importance of getting noticed for in awards. So if you're you're in Dubai, I don't know what the fastest growing company list in Dubai is, but in the United States for for example, it's the Inc 5000. In Australia it's the BRW 100. These are award programs that recognize the fastest growing companies in the country. And if you show up in one of those awards, your phone is going to ring off the hook with private equity groups looking to buy your business. And you're also going to show up on the radar of the strategics who are looking to buy into your industry. So participate, apply, get recognized as a member of your community by getting involved in the awards programs, nominate yourself, etc. The third thing I think you can consider is the magic P word. The P word stands for partnership. And if you have a specific acquirer that you think has a strategic reason to buy your business, don't approach them hat in hand saying, will you buy my business or would you be interested in acquiring our company? What I want you to do is approach them about a strategic partnership. And you don't necessarily have to go to the CEO to do this. Stephanie Breedlove is a woman I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio now back uh, two or three years ago. You can Google Built to Sell Radio Breedlove and you'll find the episode. When 
she built a payroll company for parents who have a nanny to pay. And she built it up $9 million in revenue when she decided to sell it. Now, where did she go? She went out and looked at who was out there that would have a strategic reason to buy her business and identified care.com. Care.com is like the Angie's list of care providers. You plug in, I don't know if you have it in Dubai, but you plug in your zip code in the United States and out will come a list of parent-rated uh, babysitters in your local market, five-star rated. Well, Care.com had 7 million subscribers. So Stephanie Reedlove said, man, we only have 10,000 customers and we built a $9 million business. These guys have 7 million parents who have a nanny to pay. Long story short, Breedlove approached Care.com, but she didn't go to Sheila, the CEO. She went to the middle manager. She went to the marketing manager and said, we've got some great content on what you need to think about if you're going to hire a nanny and how to pay your nanny. Um, would you be interested in a marketing partnership where we supply you with some content? Long story short, they agreed to a marketing partnership and Stephanie kind of daisy-chained her way from the marketing manager to the marketing director to the chief marketing officer and eventually got to Sheila, the CEO of Care.com. Months later, Breedlove's company was acquired by Care for $54 million. Not a bad outcome for a $9 million business. But it, it started not with, would you like to buy my company? It started with a partnership in the marketing department and again, Stephanie sort of built her relationship capital with the marketing group and then daisy-chained or leapfrogged her way to the CEO's office. Those are my three ideas, George. Get involved in your industry. Get recognized through an awards program. And if you've got an acquirer in mind, propose a partnership. Thanks for the question, George. Next question comes from Thomas. It's a longer one. I'll read it. What are the best questions to ask yourself in order to come up with the most complete and relevant list of potential strategic acquirers? Thanks for the question, Thomas. And it's a great one. So look, let's first define the most likely acquirers of your company. If you're looking at selling it externally, you've got an individual investor who is largely buying a job. You've got a private equity group or a strategic investor and a strategic it's got some sort of strategic assets that make your business worth more to them than it is to you. And that's obviously where you find generally the highest multiples. And that's probably why, Thomas, you're interested in strategic inquiries in particular. Let me also talk to you directly, even if you're not thinking of selling your business. Maybe you're 10, 20 years away from selling your business. Why do you care about Thomas's question? I think the reason you care about who the strategic acquirers are in your market is you want to make sure that even from the get-go, you are starting to think about your business decisions based on how they will play in the eyes of your most strategic natural acquirers. If you're going off building a distribution channel that they're not going to value, that's not a smart decision. Equally, if you're building out and targeting a customer set that your most natural strategic aren't going to value, that's not a good decision. So starting to make decisions through the lens of how will this make us more or less attractive to our natural strategic acquirers is just a good business hygiene thing to do, even if you're 10 or 20 years away from wanting to sell. Back to Thomas's question. So we talked about individual investors, private equity groups, and strategic acquirers. Of course, there's all sorts of ways to transition your business internally, management team, ESOP, uh, you know, transition through your family. But I'm going to assume for the 
answer to your question, Thomas, you're looking at selling externally to a strategic. First of all, I would be looking at private equity companies rolling up businesses in your industry. Right now, fueled by a lot of cheap debt, private equity companies are rolling up just about any industry you can imagine. I know about private equity companies rolling up uh, advertising agencies. I know about one that's doing a dental roll-up of dental practices. I mean, you name it, there's a private equity company trying to make a play to roll up multiple companies in the same industry. And private equity companies are usually financial buyers, but when they're doing a roll-up, they have strategic reasons to buy your business. They can graft your business onto two or three others like it, platform company, and over, all of a sudden, you've got synergies and efficiencies, and it makes it more strategic, even though it's by definition, a private equity group looking to buy your company. And so in some cases, PE companies are outbidding natural strategics because again, if they're doing a roll-up, they can take advantage of efficiencies. Um, they will act in many ways more like a strategic. So look for private equity companies rolling up businesses in your industry. Thomas, the second thing I would do is think vertically and think horizontally. What do I mean by that? You remember in grade nine economics class, you learned about vertical integration, right? Uh, where you're basically looking at the entire supply chain from your suppliers to the people you sell to. And that's going to help you think vertically about who would have a strategic reason to buy your business. So who are your suppliers? Who are your biggest customers? Those are often natural acquirers for your business and may have a strategic reason to do that. Equally, looking horizontally, if you are in a certain geographic market, are there other businesses that are in a similar industry, but outside of your geography? I know one of the uh, folks I interviewed for Built to Sell Radio about a year ago, uh, um, Houston Greenleaf, just type in Houston Greenleaf Built to Sell Radio into a web browser, um, was acquired by a large PE group rolling up uh, lawn care companies. And the reason they liked Houston Greenleaf is because Houston Greenleaf was the number one lawn care company in Houston. And Houston's the third or fourth largest, you know, metropolitan area in the United States growing like stink. They decided they wanted to own the Houston market. And so that's a horizontal play. So think horizontally about companies that may have a strategic reason to buy your business. The final and sort of most, most overarching idea here, Thomas, is to ask yourself who has a strategic reason to buy your business? For whom would your business be most valuable in the hands of? And again, I'll give you an example. I interviewed uh, Jay Steinfeld uh, years ago now on Built to Sell Radio. Again, grab a, a Google browser, Jay Steinfeld, blinds.com, Built to Sell Radio, and you, the episode will pop right up. But Jay built blinds.com. He started selling blinds when his wife actually owned a, a blind company, like a window covering retail store. And, and he thought, you know, Jeff Bezos was experimenting with selling books online. And, and Jay said, well, maybe I could sell blinds online. But here's the problem with blinds. He realized quickly that blinds are more difficult than books because they need to be installed, right? They're kind of complicated. You got to measure them. You got to pick the colors and the fabrics, and then you got to install them. It's a bit of a mess. And so Jay, over the next 30 years, worked on how to sell complicated products that needed to be installed on a website. Didn't grow as quickly as Jeff Bezos' company, but it did grow and grow it did. It went to more than $100 million 
of blinds when they caught the attention of Home Depot. Why Home Depot? Well, for two reasons. Number one, Home Depot wants to be number one or number two in every category they play in, and they were having their lunch eaten by blinds.com. So by buying blinds, Home Depot could immediately jump to the head of the window coverings category. But the second reason is hidden, and it's the strategic reason I believe that Home Depot bought blinds.com. That is that Jay had figured out the secret sauce for selling complicated products that needed to be installed online. At the time of the acquisition, Home Depot had $90 billion of annual revenue. Much of it was done through Home Depot stores. And they knew, as well as you know, that getting people to buy on your online store is infinitely cheaper than getting them to walk into a bricks and mortar store. And so Home Depot made the rational case that said, if we could get just one or two or five or 10% more of our revenue going through our online store, man, we would enjoy incredible economic benefits from doing that because they were looking at $90 billion of sales. And so even a 1% lift on that going through homedepot.com had incredible potential financially for Home Depot. And that's the second reason I believe they made the acquisition of blinds.com. So again, what you're looking for, Thomas, is someone for whom your business is much more valuable in their hands than it is in yours. To go back to George George's question and my example of Stephanie Breedlove, for care.com, Breedlove's company was a whole lot more valuable in their hands because they had 7 million subscribers. So again, Answer your question, who's most gain from buying your company? Look at vertical and horizontal players. Look at private equity companies doing roll-ups. Those are all different ways to build your long list of strategic acquirers. Whether you want to sell next month or in 25 years, knowing who your natural strategic acquirers will help you make better decisions today. Thanks for the question, Thomas. Next question comes to us from Nick in London, England. I've got a recurring revenue business with three to five year contracts and little competition. I pull out a substantial dividend each year. My business makes up the majority of my wealth and I'm getting a little uneasy about the risk I'm taking on. I don't want to sell, but I also want to be smart. Any advice? Great question, Nick. And I think it's one that we all need to grapple with at some point. Your business sounds incredibly valuable, right? You've obviously got a unique niche without a lot of competition. You've got recurring revenue that's locked in through contracts. So lots of good things going on there. And you probably built a, a valuable company that would have market value and be sellable based on what you've said, Nick. And it's the age-old question, bird in hand worth two in the bush, do I sell now and possibly leave a lot of money on the table or do I continue to grow and take the risk that maybe something bad will happen? Maybe more competitors will turn up. Uh, maybe something systemic in my business will go wrong. I mean, what this pandemic has taught many of us is that nothing is for sure. And as good and reliable your business sounds, Nick, we never know what tomorrow will bring. And so I think it's a good question that you're asking. And I think it's a very, very smart approach. Look, I think there's a few options. The, the first and probably most obvious option is to consider some sort of majority recapitalization for the company. Recapitalizations come in two flavors. There's a minority recapitalization when you sell less than half of your company 
typically to a private equity group or a financial buyer, or a majority recapitalization when you sell the majority of your shares to, again, usually a private equity group. It's not 100% though, Nick. So you're effectively kind of getting the best of both worlds in a way. You're diversifying your personal balance sheet a little bit by taking some cash off the table, uh, by selling a portion of your shares, but you're also keeping some skin in the game. A private equity group will likely get you to roll that remaining equity that would top you up to 100% into a new entity and remain a significant shareholder in the new entity and possibly even run the new entity. Because most private equity companies doing majority recapitalizations, like they don't have managers waiting in the wings. Usually they're gonna want you to stay on and run your company, maybe for as long as five, seven years more. So Nick, if you like your business and you're in this spot where you just wanna diversify a little bit, take a little bit of chips off the table, but at the same time, keep running your company, a majority recapitalization might make sense for you. When you're vetting private equity groups, don't fall in love with the first one that approaches you because if you're attractive to one private equity group, you'll likely be attractive to many. Private equity companies usually have very similar investment criteria. They're looking for companies in a protected niche with recurring revenue. I mean, you fit the bill perfectly, Nick. So if you're attracted to one, you're likely attractive to a bunch. And by running a professional process, by getting a number of different potential bidders to bid for your company, you're going to be able to see what it's worth in the eyes of the market. And then you can make a decision on which of the offers you are most attracted to. Clearly, you're going to want to look at things like what proportion of the business do they want you to roll into a new entity. Again, my comfort level is a fairly small proportion because you're giving up 100% control of your existing business for a share in a business you no longer control. And so I would be more comfortable selling the majority and a significant majority of the shares and leaving only a small slice left in the the new entity. You're also going to want to look at your liquidity options for selling. Is it that, and in most cases, it is the case that the private equity company would need to sell the new entity down the stream in the future in order for you to get any liquidity on your shares. So you're going to want to evaluate the liquidity options. Again, get multiple PE groups to bid on your company so you can really set a market rate for the value of your shares. This strategy, I hasten to add, is not without its risk. And we can look at the episode with Ryan Moran. Ryan, as you guys know, if you're longtime listeners, was on Built to Sell Radio this year, call it three months ago. So just again, Google Built to Sell Radio, Ryan Moran, and his name will, and his episode will pop right up. He built sheer strength. And he built it up to a great business selling a, uh, a, truck, a truckload. I think he was at roughly $10 million of annual revenue when he went to sell his business. He sold it to a private equity group for $17.5 million. That was the headline number. However, if you get underneath the deal, as we did on the show, you learn that he only actually got 60% of the money up front. He rolled 40% into a new entity and he had lost the stomach to continue running sheer strength so the private equity acquirer brought in a new ceo ryan and this new ceo didn't necessarily have the same vision for the direction of the company the new ceo took the company in a in a different uh sort of path they also had levered up the business with a whole bunch of debt and the business started to struggle so much so that it failed to pay the debt 
back ultimately the portion of Ryan's shares or equity that he rolled into the new entity went to zero. And it was a cautionary tale in that it really exposes the potential risk of doing a majority recapitalization, that the new entity that you fund effectively and that you are now a part shareholder in after you sell the majority of your shares can go to zero. If the private equity group uses too much debt, shoulders it in a direction that isn't wise or isn't strategically sound, and you may not have control over the direction you take the company after you no longer own it completely. So a good strategy, but not without its risks. Nick, thanks for the question. Next question comes from Sophie, who asks, do you have any particular advice for the phase of growth where the transition from doing most of it myself to building a team while still running the business day to day? How much responsibility should I give? How should I track it? When should I stay close? And when should I let the business run without me? I'd love some hands-on advice, please. Great question, Sophie. Uh, I've got some advice. I'm not sure if it's, uh, if it's as good as, as you're hoping for, but I hope it, uh, it resonates with you. First of all, know the difference between a lagging indicator and a leading indicator. I think when you're trying to get your team to do some of the work, it's helpful for you to be able to measure that in a in an, in an intuitive kind of way. And most of us think about lagging indicators like profitability, like revenue. Those are things that really help us look at the business through the rearview mirror, right? Like how did we do last week, last month, last year? A leading indicator is something that will predict the future. So your net promoter score, as an example, is a predictive metric. metric. It will measure your likelihood that your clients will recommend you or your customers will recommend you, but it is predictive of your future growth rate because what it measures is the likelihood that your customers will refer you and repurchase from you. And that is the raw material or ingredients that lights the match for growth. That's why it's a predictive indicator. So you're going to want to look for leading indicators in whatever industry you're in that will soundly and safely predict the future of your business. That's going to give you more confidence to sort of step away and let the business run a little bit. The second piece of advice I have comes from a a Dutch advisor of ours, um, a certified value builder. It's called the yesable answer. Here's the way he structures the answer to these questions. When your employees come to you, Sophie, for a, with a question, doesn't matter what it is, right? Can I give this customer a discount? How, you know, uh, how do I lock up the store at night, etc. The breadth of questions is 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 somewhat irrelevant. What you're looking for them to do is pose a question in such a way that you can give a yes or no answer. It's called the yesable solution. And that forces the person asking the question to do some thinking. First of all, they've got to evaluate the potential options. They've got to do a little bit of research and they've got to frame the question so that you can simply answer yes or no. So a non-yesable problem would be customers complaining, your employee comes in with their hair on fire saying, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Uh, They're screaming at me and they want a discount. You restructure that question and say, 
give it to me in a question that I can answer with a yes or no, which forces the employee to think about it. Well, I guess I could give them a discount or I could, you know, repair the product for them. I could offer to ship it to them for free. And I, you know, I think the best solution would be to give them a discount. So then the reframe question would be, this customer is really frustrated. They're super angry and I would like to give them a 10% discount. Is that okay? Your answer as the owner is simply yes or no. But it's forced the employee to do some thinking on his or her own, to come up with some options and to come up with their recommendation for you. And you'll find that by doing that, your employees will start to be able to act a lot more independently. Another variation of the yesable question is simply the question, what would you do if it were your business? And you'll find by asking that question a lot, Sophie, you'll find that your employees are perfectly capable of thinking on their own. And nine out of 10 times, they will indeed come up with the right answer. And you can simply say, yeah, that sounds like a great solution. So the yesable question or simply, what would you do if you owned the company is another way to get employees thinking independently. The third thing I would say, Sophie, and this is more of a, a gut check for you and a lifeline, uh, a life vest maybe, or a seatbelt for your business. And that is develop a 12-week cash flow forecast that you keep every single day and you look at it every single day. That's going to give you assurances that at the very least, no matter how big a mistake your employees make as you're trying to get them to work and, and work independently, you've got the cash to survive those mistakes. Effectively, it's oxygen for your company Nothing else matters if you run out of auction, you're dead within seconds. Equally, your cash flow is the most important number that you need to be managing as you're making this transition from a company that's heavily dependent on you to one that you're trying to get some of your employees to do some of the work. If As long as you can look out 12 weeks in the future and know that you've got plenty of cash to ride out any hiccups along the way, you're fine. And I think it'll just give you the ability to sleep at night, Sophie, as you make some of these transitions to getting your business to work more effectively without you. Sophie, thank you so much for the question. Thank you so much, John Kay, George in Dubai, Thomas, Nick in London, and Sophie. Great questions all of you. Listen, if you didn't get your question answered today, not to worry. We have a community of value builder advisors around the world who are standing by waiting to answer your question about applying the built to sell methodology to your business. Whether you want to grow the value of your company, ultimately sell it, or just create some recurring revenue, our value builder advisors around the world are here for you. If you don't have a Value Builder advisor yet, simply head over to valuebuilder.com, complete the Value Builder questionnaire, and we'll get you set up with an advisor near you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with a regular edition of Built to Sell Radio next week. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling. 
where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.